Now the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. It is that time where we sit down and talk about, you know, martinis. We've got the good, we've got the bad, we got the crazy. I'm Chad Benson in for Greg Columbus. Jim Garrity is here, though, as always. And, boy, we've got a crazy day already. We've got the good. Let's start there. It's a victory for Trump and the administration. Justices today at SCOTUS, 5-4. to four. The Constitution requires the president to have unfettered discretion to fire the head of Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. A lot of SCOTUS decisions today. A win for Trump to start the day off, though. Yeah, this is definitely the good news out of the morning for the Trump administration. People may remember the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, established during the Obama administration. Elizabeth Warren was a, 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 the architect of this and a very strong advocate for this. And I believe Richard Cadre was the first one. And the way Congress wrote it, it really gave the president very little um, uh, discretion over who ran it. They tried to basically try to set it up as once we establish this, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau can do whatever it wants and you can't have, uh, you know, we can't have some future president meddling around with what this is going to do, which led to when Trump took power and uh, the, yeah, I think you tried to get Mick Mulvaney, the, uh, you know, put him in charge of that because Mulvaney didn't have enough jobs at the time anyway. Um, and that, you know, the, the lawsuit started saying, well, the president can't do that. Apparently this is one of, one of those cases where President Obama can, can appoint someone, but Trump cannot. Well, Supreme Court came down today, 5-4 decision. Uh, the president has unfettered discretion to fire the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now, some people wanted to, on the right had wanted to argue that because of the way Congress had structured this and tried to put in this uh, no take backs, no, no future presidents can change this sort of thing. Um, they argued the whole agency was unconstitutional and the whole thing should be shut down. That did not pass uh, the muster with the court. Um, but all in all, look, the idea that you know, if a president makes the, the, the idea that the president should be in charge of personnel for the executive branch, whether you like this president, whether you don't like this president, whether you think you're going to like the next president or dislike the next president, we should have consistent rules from presidency to presidency. There is no reason to argue that a president should be allowed to make an appointment, but his successor should not be allowed to fire that appointment. Yeah, that's the frustrating thing thing with a lot of people looking at several several of these decisions i feel like obama got to do some stuff and trump hasn't been able to do it but like even with the decision last week with daca that was more about the you know the dotting the i's crossing the t's and whether or not he had the right to do something or not do something this though was a little bit more simple in the way that they approached it hence the reason why it seems to be quite all right but it is interesting that it was a 5-4 decision because you would think to yourself, even if you're a liberal justice or conservative, there are just some things that seem to be, well, if you can do one thing, so should the president be able to do the next one, something similar. Yeah. And, you know, this is uh, I, I went back and I checked. This is part of the 2010 Dodd-Frank financial legislation. Um, and the idea was the director would be appointed to a five year term. And they wrote into the law that the director could only be fired for, quote, inefficiency, neglect of duty or malfeasance in office. Uh, they did not want political interference at this. Now, the problem is, is that, you know, for every other position in government, secretary of state, secretary of defense, if the president decides, you know what, I don't want that guy in that job, he can replace him. And there, this is, you know, needs, for some of these jobs, you need Senate confirmation. But every one of these positions of the executive branch, you are serving at the pleasure of the president. You know, the five-year term means you're going to have a certain carryover into the next administration in, in a lot of cases. But, you know, the idea should be, the pre if you have this broad principle, the president should appoint the people he wants into his cabinet. It's his cabinet. He can be held accountable in both the midterm elections and in the subsequent election. 
you know, the idea that, well, we're going to write into the law these little provisions to make sure the president doesn't have full authority over staffing the executive branch. Um, not a good idea. Glad to see the, the Supreme Court's come through it. Again, you're right. A case that probably should have been nine nothing, but, you know, we know, you know you get almost none of those these days, particularly on anything where uh, Republicans and Democrats disagree. Absolutely. Uh, Jim, he's Jim Garrity. I'm Chad Benson. And for Greg Columbus, Aslo, what is it? Well, in 2020, every business in the country is learning how to adapt day by day. But why aren't the banks unnecessary fees? Taking a trip to your bank is the last thing business owners need to be thinking about. Aslo takes all the friction out of business banking instead of insisting you handle your banking as if the Internet never existed. Aslo is a free business checking account with invoicing, bill pay, money transfers, no minimum balance, and no fees. Unlike other banking options, there is no minimum deposit required, so you'll never be charged maintenance or overdraft fees, and there's no ridiculous phone system that feels like it was just specifically designed to waste your time. Instead of the days or weeks it takes to apply for an account at a traditional bank, where you're still required to go in person, with Aslo, you just go to azlo.com and apply in as little as 10 minutes. And there is no waiting to use your account. With Aslo's free instant funding feature, you can deposit up to $1,000 and access it in your account instantly. Aslo is owned by BBVA USA, member FDIC. And because they make business banking easy and offer a fee-free checking account, Money Magazine called them, quote, the best business banking option for freelancers and entrepreneurs. Sign up right now with no minimum deposit at aslo.com slash martini and get a free copy of Aslo's Small Business Starter Guide. azlo.com slash martini and sign up with a free Small Business Starter Guide and no minimum deposit, aslo.com slash martini. We've had our good in our three martini lunch. Now let's head to our bad and... The Supreme Court today went in the direction that is going to make a lot of people rather angry with Chief Justice Roberts siding with the liberal wing of said courts. What do you think of that? Yeah, so pretty much since mid-morning, my email box has been nearly overflowing with really angry statements and public releases from pro-life organizations. They are deeply disappointed with this decision. Yet another 5-4 ruling. Uh, Louisiana had a law that required anyone providing abortions to have admitting privileges at your local hospitals. Uh, the argument was this was a way to make sure anyone who was performing an abortion was uh, you know, up to snuff medically. They had the proper training. They knew how to handle uh, if things went wrong, et cetera. And pro-choice organizations said, no, 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 we can tell what this is really trying to do. This is trying to shut down abortion clinics. This is trying to create a new burden on patients who wanted an abortion. In a five to four ruling, that is the way the Supreme Court saw it, including Chief Justice John Roberts siding with the courts for liberal justices, progressive justices, living constitution justices, however you want to characterize them. Um, they argue, just, just as Stephen Breyer wrote for the liberal wing, uh, enforcing the admitting privileges requirement would drastically reduce the number and geographic distribution of abortion providers, making it impossible for many women to obtain a safe legal abortion, imposing substantial obstacles on those who could. Now, what's fascinating is a couple of years ago, Roberts had made a similar decision and seemed to be on that side of the, on the other side of this issue. Uh, those who recall the uh, Obamacare decision back in the summer of 2012, anybody who went into this uh, on the right who went into this decision 
suspicious of John Roberts, not trusting John Roberts, starting to think that John Roberts had become uh, a squish or the new Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, the new weather vane. They have another piece of evidence in that argument. And I think um, the, the mood amongst pro-lifers this, this afternoon is, if not despondent, um, that this is a really bitter pill. This was a real kick in the teeth, uh, deeply frustrating. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, John Roberts was a big part of the George W. Bush presidency legacy. And I think over time, whether or, I mean, Justice you know, Roberts may well believe that he's making the right decisions to keep the, United, the Supreme Court apolitical. I don't think it's working. <laughs> I think people still see the Supreme Court as being very political. And some of these things you have to decide whether you think it is right or not. And this decision, um, by aligning with them, people are going to say, hey, uh, it sounds like we got another David Souter on our hands. It's not nearly as many cases as Souter was, but uh, certainly on a bunch of the high profile cases lately, uh, Roberts has not gone the way folks on the right wanted to see. Isn't a lot of what Roberts is, though, because he's very concerned with the look of the court. He's very concerned with the legacy of the court, and he wants to be above politics, which is hard because, let's be real, you have a very right-leaning four. You have a very left-leaning four. And as much as you would love to be above politics, we are no longer in that position to be above politics. And I think he wants to be the only one, and he seems to be the only one, who lives above the pol- the politics. And that frustrates a lot of people because today it was all about, well, we already did this a few years ago about Texas. Why are we doing this again? Yeah. One of the things that kind of jumps to mind is, and if you think, you know, I keep going back to the 2012 uh, Obamacare individual mandate decision as maybe the classic example. And that's where Roberts first got this reputation as a guy who was worried about the reputation of the court, the perception of the court, and the fear that the court would lose its perception of legitimacy if it appeared to be delving into politics too much. Um, Look, I think we can all agree that had the Supreme Court struck down Obamacare as unconstitutional because of the individual mandate in the summer of 2012, as President Obama was running for re-election, that probably would have hurt Obama's uh, re-election chances. It probably would have been the sort of thing that the Romney-Ryan campaign would have beat the drum on for for the rest of the campaign. Would it have been enough to put Romney over the top? I don't know. But it's one of those things where clearly there was no way the Supreme Court was going to be able to avoid being seen as being a major player in that year's election. Roberts yeah. appeared to be going towards the, yes, the individual mandate is an unconstitutional. It is not just a tax in the, in the beginning of the process. And then he shifted. And a lot of people thought, ah, you know, the other liberal justices got to him or Harry Reid and all these other Senate Democrats were arguing that if you, if you, do, if you intervene this way, you'll taint the name of the Supreme Court forever. Yeah. Um, Chaos. I, I think it is safe. to. It, what's interesting is he seems to see, oh, if we rule this way, Liberals and, you know, let's face it, a good portion of, let's say, the law professors, lawyers, the professional legal community outside of the Federalist Society is generally more left-leaning. They would, you know, that they would no longer see the court as legitimate, and this would be seen as a, you know, stain on its reputation for generations to come, yada, yada, yada. Um, Republican presidents have nominated 14 of the past 18 Supreme Court justices. Republicans don't feel like they've gotten 14 strict constructionist or originalist or conservative, whichever... Uh, adjective you prefer, uh, but they haven't gotten that. And there doesn't seem to be a, like, I I would argue a David Souter type undermines the legitimacy of the Supreme Court because people feel like there's a particular kind of justice going on there. And then he gets on there with a lifetime appointment. All of a sudden it's like, no, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to be completely different from what everybody thought. Or I hid my record. I hid what I truly thought. Now that I'm on the court and it's really almost impossible to get rid of me. 
Now I'm going to tell you what I really think. And it turns out to be totally different from what's expected. I think that undermines the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. I think that also indicates how much the Supreme Court, regardless of whether it wants to be or not, is inherently a political process institution because it is part of government and politics infuses almost everything related to government. So um, I think Roberts is, he's like Sisyphus. He tries keeps trying to roll the, roll the the stone uphill. It rolls back down. I think you should accept that the fact that the court is going to be perceived political, no matter what it does and uh, wouldn't kill him to, you know, side with the folks on the right, you know, a little more frequently. (laughs) Wouldn't mind seeing that. Chad Benson in for Greg Columbus here, of course, that's Jim Garrity, and uh, it is the three martini lunch, the last. We've had the good, we've had the bad. Now let's talk a little crazy in the rumor that's out there that Trump will be one and done. Yeah, so it's not just the uh, the re-election issue. And ironically, I noticed this when it came out yesterday from uh, Charles Gasparino, uh, who's a generally pretty darn reliable reporter over at Fox News. Uh, there's a web article on the website now. Andrew O'Reilly and uh, Lydia Monahan have joined to it. Um, the argument is GOP operatives are the first time raising the possibility that Donald Trump could drop out of the race if his poll numbers don't rebound. Quoting his uh, Gasparino's tweet here: Over the weekend, I spoke to a sample of major players. One described Trump's one described Trump's current psyche as fragile. Um, I'm not convinced yet he's got time and he's running against an opponent who is literally hiding in his basement. I think you can know how Casparino thinks about Joe Biden right now. Uh, the public isn't focusing yet on just how left wing Joe Biden has become so much so he can't bring himself to denounce rioting. So I myself, I, I don't doubt the reporting of Charles Gasparino in the sense that I think he is accurately uh, not quoting directly, but kind of characterizing the viewpoints of these GOP operatives he's talked to. That having been said, I don't see any scenario where President Trump drops out between now and November. Um, I, I suppose he could have a health issue that would cause something between now and then. But by and large, I don't see any scenario where Trump would uh, go along with any any course of action that would lead to a perception of him as a quitter. I think whatever, and you know, listeners know I've got a lot of disagreements with the man, but I think he sees, you know, he is a fighter down to the marrow in his bones. And I think it would... Uh, in a way, quitting and, and letting Pence take over or somebody else, uh, barring some you know serious health issue or something like that, I think he would he would see that as a humiliation. I think he would see that as admitting defeat before the fight was over. So um, while the president's poll numbers aren't looking great like now, great right now, I I don't know whether these you know GOP operatives are wishing for this or they're hoping for this or they're you know, but I I, I don't know about you, Chad. I just see no scenario in which the president is not you know on the ballot uh, in on November barring some, you know, meteorite hitting him or something like that, or, you know, uh, some other, you know, some other, some other sense in which he's physically unable to continue in the job. You know, I, I look at this and, and I heard, you know, I heard James Carville say the same thing earlier today that he could be one and done. And, and I thought, is it possible? Yeah. Trump at times seems like the person that would get pissed off enough, if you will, to take his ball and go home. Uh, could I see it happen? No, because he likes the fight too much. He enjoys the fight. He likes the chaos, which drives a lot of people crazy. And at times, I'm sure it drives you crazy. It drives me crazy, some of the chaos. I don't see him walking away like that. Now, in saying that, a lot can happen between now and November, and the health concerns are always very real. Let's be real. We don't have two spry people that are running right now uh, for president of the United States. So is anything possible? Absolutely. But I just don't see it. I wouldn't say never. And at the same time, I'm saying as close to never as you can get 
is the way I feel about whether or not he's a one and done. So I still think come November you'll see Trump there, regardless of what the polls say, whether he's getting boat raced or he's in a dead heat or beating Biden, he's going to be there. Yeah. Now, you're, what I'm interested as you as you're laying that out, Chad, I suddenly had the thought, look, you know, I was out last week. Uh, Trump had a Trump had a rough week. And, and I think one of the moments and I saw quite a few people writing about it as kind of illustrative. He's doing an interview with Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity asked him this basic softball. What do you want to do in a second term? And it, it was, or, or what's the argument for you having a second term? And Trump gives this long meandering answer that talks about the value of experience. And he puts in some shots against Joe Biden. And it's, it's kind of, it, it was all about himself and it wasn't particularly specific. And I think what, you know, a much better answer and ho- one, hopefully the president will be formulating will be like, look, you just saw these Supreme Court decisions. You know how old Ginsburg is. You know how many, how old number of the justices are. The next president's going to appoint a lot of Supreme Court justices. That's why you need me. That's why you need a Republican Senate. Uh, he could point to uh, the economy. He can point to continuing the coronavirus recovery. He could point to issues on foreign policy. and th- you know, Like, talk to people about what you're going to do for them in a second term. Talk about what they get. Talk about what you can deliver, not about your feelings, not about how the media is mean to you, not about how your critics are so unfair. Be, you know, you're a salesman, Mr. Trump, Mr. President. Lay it out. You know, close the sale. Make the sale. Um, and that answer definitely didn't do it. So I guess there's some people who look at that and say, oh, the president isn't uh, either he's accepted he's going to not going to reelection or he's just not thinking that hard about his second term agenda. Look, you know, you got to you got to give people a sense of what they would get, what what would happen if they are reelected other than more of the same. Because I think you look at his approval rating and the current head to head numbers against Biden and they're not that great. And, you know, mm-hmm. right now, I think I, I concur with the, the uh, conventional wisdom. If this election is a referendum on Trump, yeah, Biden's going to win. If this election is a you know contrast between the two policy visions, I think Trump has much better chances there, and that's where he can win this. Hopefully, he'll get his act together and do that. But uh, you know, he's he's a man he's a, a man in his seventies, so uh, you know habits don't change very easily. But hopefully, somebody's uh, calling his attention to it. I also kind of wonder no. though, if some of these folks are saying this to Gasparino so that Trump sees it and uh, kind of as a light a fire under him, so to speak. You never, ever know if that will happen with Trump. Again, it's just chaos and craziness, and at the time, some brilliance. But you get too close to the fire, sometimes you get burned, sometimes you come out. Trump always seems to come out unscathed, but long way to go. Jim Garrity right there, three martini lunch. I'm Chad Benson, and for Greg Columbus. We'll do it again tomorrow. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. All right, see you guys then. Thanks so much.